0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr. Chris Wallace. Chris is a professor at the 50-50 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra. She's also a former member of the Canberra Press Gallery. Chris joined me to discuss the latest in federal politics, including the recent revelations published in The Australian that former Prime Minister Scott Morrison formally appointed himself to at least three ministerial roles in secret, with the ABC's 730 reporting that the true number may be up to five. These reports were confirmed a couple of hours after the interview with Scott Morrison having been appointed to these roles between March 2020 and May 2021. Scott Morrison became the Health Minister, the Finance Minister, the Home Affairs Minister, the Treasurer and the Minister for Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. The majority of his Cabinet colleagues were kept in the dark about this, as were the general public. Chris also discusses the makeup of the new parliament and the federal government's dismal approach to pandemic management. But I thought we'd break out of the mould a little bit and do things differently. And someone else who's been breaking out of the mould and doing things differently is former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who's going to take up a bit of a chunk of this conversation on federal politics, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure. Dr Chris Wallace is coming back onto the program to discuss federal politics. She is professor at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra. She's a political historian. She was a long standing member of the Canberra Press Gallery. And Chris is also the author of How to Win an Election. And she has been appearing on this program a few times this year and also before to discuss her book. And we've been talking about the election, big picture thinking and ideas about the media's role in politics. And now Chris is back to talk about federal politics more broadly, what's been happening, but especially, obviously, the latest news that has been coming out about former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who apparently has decided to appoint himself to numerous ministerial roles, cabinet positions, in many cases, without the minister, the other minister, knowing about it at the time. And in some cases, they only just found out over the weekend when reading The Australian. To unpack all of what has been happening is Dr. Chris Wallace. Thank you, Chris, for coming back onto the show. And as I was saying off air, pretty good timing, hey?
1: Indeed. Good morning, Amy. And I really like the Scott Morrison trigger alert you effectively inserted at the top of your program.
0: <laughs> I know. Well I feel done. like I need to do that now because I never expected to have to talk about him in this much detail again. Yeah, um, but he's, he's there. He's
1: in it, still in our heads. He's still in Parliament and... Today he is all over the front pages and the opinion pages for the most extraordinary of of reasons. Like Canberra, you're used to big stories breaking, but this is like tectonic plates shifting kind of stuff. This is so weird, so big, so unexpected.
0: Yeah, huge. It's huge. And a lot of people have in pandemic land used the word unprecedented for COVID-19, but this is clearly also unprecedented, isn't it? This certainly, to our knowledge, hasn't happened across history, at least in Australia's history. And Malcolm Turnbull last night confirmed that he hadn't appointed himself secretly to any uh, cabinet ministerial positions without his colleagues or the public knowing. So that's, that's one prime minister we know hasn't done this.
1: No prime minister has ever done this before. It's the secrecy that is the, the keynote of this move. Of course, right now we have portfolios where there are ministers and junior ministers with kind of overlapping responsibilities. That That's well known. And Of course, there's a historic example of the incoming Whitlam government in 1972 where Gough Whitlam and his deputy Lance Barnard effectively divvied up all of the portfolios between them for a very short time while organising the incoming government. And bear in mind, Labor hadn't been in power for 23 years federally at that point, so it was a pretty sensible thing to do and was very short-lived, and it was very public. What is so super weird about this is the secrecy, not just from voters, Amy, but from his own government. Uh, as Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said amongst one of his killer lines yesterday, this was Scott Morrison making a vote of no confidence in his own government. It's its bizarre, and I think where this story is going to go on for days, not least because it's not fully dawned in Canberra that even though this was super secret, even though lots of Cabinet, well, the Cabinet didn't know, uh, by and large, that, that this was happening, with a few notable exceptions, including Attorney General Christian Porter, who appears to have done the legal engineering for Morrison on all of this. But it's inconceivable that public servants didn't know uh, in the relevant ministries because if Scott Morrison had sworn himself in as co-minister in at least three ministries that we know of so far, he was very likely to be getting cabinet documents and other departmental documents relevant to those portfolios and you can't do that until unless at least the secretary of the department knows. So there's a lot more, more
0: to come on this story. There certainly is. We are seeing Reports coming out quite literally every minute, five minutes. AAP Newswire has already tweeted out an administrative arrangements order which David Hurley and Scott Morrison signed, David Hurley being Australia's Governor-General. They've also said that it appears Scott Morrison was sworn in to oversee aspects of the social services portfolio on RN Breakfast Anthony Albanese flagged that there may be more um, in terms of beyond the three portfolios we already know about, there may be other portfolios that Scott Morrison also appointed himself to Scott Morrison, funnily enough, has been on 2GB this morning talking about this, even though yesterday he really basically declined to discuss anything and said he hadn't been engaging in day-to-day politics despite him being a politician um, <laughs> and an active member for Cook. And it was interesting to see him actually say, I can't recall whether there were any other ones that I was sworn into and and really kind of being a bit vague there. So it seems that there's more to come on this story. It's not just the health portfolio of which Greg Hunt was aware that Scott Morrison was being appointed into that. There was also the resources portfolio and the finance portfolio. And funnily enough, Chris, it also didn't all occur at the same time. And that's another kind of interesting point to this.
1: Well, well, that's the thing, Amy. This, This was pegged in Morrison's mind on the pandemic emergency, right? And his argument was Greg Hunt, the health minister, at the time that the pandemic was unfolding would have had extraordinary powers solely in his hands to administer laws to do with the pandemic and, and manners arising. So his internal argument with, with Hunt and with Christian Porter was, you know, what if Hunt becomes incapacitated? Uh, isn't this too much power in one person's hands? What if they you know, get run over by a bus? Even that wasn't a problem. If you're health ministers incapacitated, appoint another health minister. This is within the prime ministerial
0: prerogative, right? And it happens Uh, quite often. Like, I think I recall Arthur Sinodinus became unwell and someone was appointed into his role.
1: Exactly. It's completely, you know, routine ministerial politics. That's what prime ministers can and often do. So even the basic pretext was a non-pretext. Having done it once, clearly he got the taste for this and just couldn't help keeping going back to the power, you know, cookie cupboard and getting another cookie portfolio by portfolio. And it's so odd, you know, like the the word that sprang to mind yesterday as all of this was unfolding was Nixonian. But it's so much more Nixonian than Richard Nixon ever was. Mm. Uh, It's it's the secrecy, it's not only a fundamental breach of the Westminster system, which is our system of government, it's very psychologically odd and it, it made me think actually of um, the couple of good books we had on Morrison and his psychology in the lead up to the, the election, the Anarchist Smethurst biography and the Sean Kelly book. And it's it's very interesting in the Smethurst book when you read about Scott Morrison's uh, early years, especially at school at Sydney Boys High, you, you got the picture of someone who didn't quite know how to interact with people, you know, that you know, human interactions weren't weren't easy and it was a bit of a kind of a, a, a guy who was fighting a bit hard to fit in. And mm-hmm. it's almost like in this instance, you know, he's in a party, he's the leader of a party, but he doesn't get parties, right? It's all about you, yourself, your power, what you know about you and what you can do. And, you know, this kind of weird inability to relate beyond himself. And, and in this... Uh, extraordinary series of revelations, you're seeing someone in a Westminster system trying to transform it secretly into a centralised presidential power mode that is simply not the the Australian system.
0: Yes. Scott Morrison had said I'm a bit of a bulldozer, as we would well recall, from the election campaign, and that certainly corresponds to what you're saying about his social skills. And I know we've seen a lot of other MPs across the spectrum recount their interactions with Scott Morrison on negotiating legislation. For example, there's a whole range of stories out there people can find out on Twitter and in books. That one of the, the other killer lines that Anthony Albanese had yesterday, and this has been playing in my mind, is, quote, this is the sort of tin pot activity that we would ridicule if it was in a non-democratic country. And, you know, the other words he's been using are shadow government, you know, that this is some kind of secret shadow government where he is the only one, he and Christian Porter and maybe one other are the only ones that we know of so far who always knew what had been going on, it seems. I mean, it is shocking to think that this would happen in Australia, given that we expect that there should be checks and balances. The Governor-General is one of them, in fact, although I think a lot of people now see his role as being more of a symbolic role after the, the Whitlam era. And I wondered what your thoughts are on that, what the public's expectations are of politicians, just as much as what the politicians' expectations are of operating in this Westminster democracy? The absolute fundamental of our system is that voters
1: know who the ministers are, who are responsible for the portfolios that operate the policy and do the spending for the running of the nation. So that transparency is absolutely fundamental to our system of ministerial accountability. Uh, If you don't know who the minister is, then the normal... Operations of Australian politics through Parliament, through media scrutiny, can't operate. Uh, the secrecy involved in this—you know—Albanese is totally right. This was a shadow government within a government. Um, so shadow that his own colleagues, except for one or two who were party to the events, uh, knew about it. That it—that it is so fundamental a breach may not be fully understood by all Australian citizens, but they will all have a sense that something deeply strange and wrong is happening when such things are done by one person in total secrecy, concealed but from 99.9% of his colleagues and from all of us. Uh, the, the implications of this are, are so big that, you know, in, in a way, it's it's it, it has a coup-like flavour, um, you know, a coup against his own government in effect. Yeah, not literally, yeah. obviously, but figuratively. In that he was able, as co-minister, secretly, presumably, to to do what he wanted uh, within lawful ministerial bounds without colleagues knowing. So not even an internal accountability within cabinet, let alone any accountability to us so so strange and really you know everyone's scratching their heads here and just going what happened you know who was this person that we had running the country for all those years so strange
0: very strange yeah well one of the interesting quotes and um, discussions i've seen from the national side is actually bridget mckenzie who was a minister in um, the coalition government. She said on ABC's afternoon briefing that she's really concerned. She says, quote, I think these revelations do bring into question our Westminster system of government, the conventions that underpin how we have confidence and trust in our parliamentary system. And as a former cabinet minister... I took those conventions very seriously. If there were two ministers effectively exercising the same authority within cabinet, who was the senior minister? What if they disagreed? What implications does that have for decisions? So I think she raises such an important point there, which is if Scott Morrison knows he's the additional minister, but the other minister doesn't, how does that work for decision making? And what, repercussions does that have uh, not only for cabinet decision-making, but also for areas where there is ministerial discretion in portfolios like the resources portfolio that Scott Morrison was sworn into? The thing about the Westminster system is so much of it rests on convention.
1: Uh, In Britain, which is where the Westminster system originated, it rests entirely on convention. Uh, Britain doesn't actually have a written constitution. We in Australia do have a written constitution, but on top of that are a whole lot of conventions uh, that have been imported from British British politics historically that have worked really, really well. And, uh, you know, the, the assumption that everyone's observing the conventions is very important to the day-to-day proper functioning of our politics. So to the extent that Bridget McKenzie is, is raising questions about Scott Morrison's actions in such a a, a constructively critical manner is incredibly encouraging. In fact, the whole kind of revulsion of the system and its participants here against this news is deeply encouraging. But, you know, it's yet another erosion of trust in the system that Morrison has been responsible for. And, of course, systems that work on a large degree of trust, once you erode it, You increase paranoia, the system can start to break down. So really, Scott Morrison may have, you know, of all the things he did in Australian politics, landing a blow on the fundamentals of the Westminster system in this way, without anyone finding out, uh, is is possibly the starkest, worst thing he's done. And, Amy, think. There were a couple of ministers who knew, who said Mm. nothing. One of them was the Attorney General Christian Porter. Now, I don't know about you, but I watched Question Time day in, day out and saw Scott Morrison stand by Christian Porter uh, through his travails very staunchly. And as he was doing it, I thought, why is it? Why is he standing by Christian Porter uh, through the political storm that surrounded the Attorney General, not just while he was Attorney General, but after he resigned, uh, given the blind trust he he used to uh, get funding for his legal actions against Joe Dyer amongst others. And it was a complete puzzle. But is part of the answer to that mysterious question, why Scott Morrison stood so staunchly by Christian Porter, is one of the reasons that Christian Porter was the only person probably who knew the whole picture, because he was the one legally and administrat- administratively facilitating Scott Morrison's adoption one by one of all these other ministers portfolios but there's there's just so much to this story it's going to take a long time to excavate but by god you know this is this is really dramatic big deal stuff and the only good i can see that it's going to do is make people really focus again on what the Westminster system is, why observing the conventions is so important, and that if you lose that, you know, you really do end up heading toward dictator territory. I don't think it was an error... I don't think it was uh, an accident that Anthony Albanese used the word tinpot yesterday. Mm. He didn't use the other word that springs immediately to mind when you hear the word tinpot, but, of course, it's dictator and if you have a single person amassing secret power to themselves, that's where you're going. You're heading for a dictatorship. That's, that's not democratic. That's dictatorship.
0: Yeah, and there are major questions now about how much that power has been used in which portfolios and obviously many people have raised the point that there will be um, potentially repercussions for any decisions that have been made in some of these portfolios and people might be able to launch legal action which is going to cause a lot of headaches for the current government but yeah i was really interested to see that even the institute of public affairs the ipa the senior fellow there john Roscom was also up in arms saying that, quote, Scott Morrison trashed democracy and accountability. It's incredible he thought he could get away with it. Quote, the PM should establish an inquiry with power to subpoena any relevant document and to compel witnesses to appear. Morrison must commit to answer for his efforts to destroy all our parliamentary norms. Now, anyone who's familiar with the IPA, it's kind of amazing to see that pretty much every part of politics is all on the one side here. And as you kind of referenced, it's it's brought everyone together and it's quite heartening to see that there is at least some level of appreciation for the standards of democracy and that transparency needs to be upheld. Do you agree with John Roskam there that there should be an inquiry, that there should have, you know, almost like Royal Commission powers to compel witnesses to appear, to get documents? Because... I mean, it seems to be quite astonishing how much this has gone. It's not just one portfolio. Perhaps an inquiry is the only way to get to the bottom of everything that's happened. And I wonder, would you agree with that take? Well, it's certainly very much significant enough
1: to have a Royal Commission. Whether that ends up happening or not, I don't know. It would be merited. It may or may not be necessary. The Prime Minister's dispatched his PM&C chief, Glenn Davis, to try and assemble the documents and, and find out what the hell has happened. But you know, even at that level, how are they going to do it? Uh, I think it's David Crow in the Herald today was had made inquiries of Keith Pitt to try and find out essentially when he became a co-minister and, you know, the, the degree of confusion, the lack of paperwork, the, the know-nothingness that's there is so extraordinary. I mean, again, coming back to that Richard Nixon comparison, it, it is Nixonian to the extent that it's kind of so covert. And, Amy, when you link it to other revelations in the post-election period, um, the one I'm thinking of most of all is Scott Morrison preaching at Margaret Court's church in Perth and saying he didn't trust in government, you know, we don't mm. trust in government. You know, what was he doing exactly as Prime Minister? Uh, The Four Corners report, you know, back in the day that drew attention to his family's QAnon friendships and and links, Um, you know, is that involved? I I just think there's this extraordinary subterranean story that may in fact take a Royal Commission to to uncover. Um, If we go there, I won't be surprised. But I tell you this, we have to find out exactly what happened And who this guy was that was running Australia and what exactly he did. I mean, what else don't we know about? This is is just extraordinary.
0: Yeah, it's kind of surprising to think that you would believe it wouldn't come out at some point. Scott Morrison has, as I said, been on 2GB this morning and uh, apparently he thought that these arrangements were fine as, quote, the buck stops with me as PM. That totally flies in the face of what you've just been talking about with ministerial responsibility and each minister having sole responsibility for their portfolio it also is quite astonishing that he was comparing these secret jobs to being on a nuclear submarine where two people need the keys to the nuclear weapon or the missile you know it seems that with responses like this that are quite dismissive that there really isn't a lot of choice i mean it seems that with so few people knowing about this that there is kind of a need for more deeper investigation than just a, a pmnc information gathering exercise absolutely just, just on that word responsibility mm.
1: this is the system of cabinet government inc- has a has collective responsibility but ministers traditionally are solely accountable for their portfolios and, and it's a really important distinction because if something goes wrong in a portfolio for politics to work under this system there's got to be a consequence. And in fact, the system of ministerial accountability has been eroded for a very long time under the Liberal and National Party coalition governments. We've seen, uh, especially over the last three terms of government, but but during the Howard government as well. Um, Just an example from the most recent government, Senator Richard Colbeck, the Minister for Aged Care, was by any standards a hopeless minister. Uh, There was problem after problem in Australian nursing homes, especially during the pandemic, He never took responsibility. He never stood up and said, as you should under the Westminster system, I got it wrong. I didn't do well enough. I'm resigning so that, you know, the Prime Minister could put a more effective minister in. That's our system of ministerial accountability and the coalition has has pretty substantively trashed it. But now we know behind the scenes Scott Morrison was getting rid of it altogether and just amassing it to himself so it's really hard for people in Canberra, I think, even twenty four hours later, even I think the story first broke on Saturday, but it took people a while to kind of fully work it out. I think there's this there's this ongoing dawning realization of just how huge this is. and, you know, Amy, we're going to be talking about this for a while, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah, apologies in advance to everyone. But it is important, as we've outlined, I'm sure people do get the gravity of the situation after hearing what we're talking about right now. Anthony Albanese did say this morning that he's going to be briefed by Glenn Davis, the Secretary of pm and a bit later this morning and then he's going to provide further information to the public and ensure that at least Things are transparent that we do now find out what has been happening. He's also sought legal advice from the Solicitor-General, who's the top lawyer in the land for the government, around the legal instrument that potentially enabled this appointment to occur and whether it was in fact legal or not and if there is a loophole, what that loophole is. I wonder, have you seen the kind of discussions out and about from various constitutional experts like Anne Toomey and, and others around what the options are even through Australia's constitution to do something like this. Because it seems that if you were gonna try and close this loophole, potentially you might need to change the constitution and that ends in a referendum. Yes, i I, I heard
1: Anne Toomey on the ABC yesterday talk about this at length and From what she said, I thought it was pretty clear that technically it was probably legally possible to do it. The thing is, in our system, which in Australia is a mix of written constitution plus political conventions, it's very hard to tie down every single little detail, especially, as you say, when you'd have to have a referendum to do that. Mm. What you need is strong, clearly understood conventions that are observed and you need consequences when those tran- when those conventions are not observed. So, for example, the last really huge time political conventions in Australia weren't observed was the constitutional crisis in 1975, uh, when the Governor General dismissed the Whitlam government, made the leader of the opposition the acting Prime Minister, and called an election. And of course, that completely shook the system hugely. It was, you know, it's it's a hot topic still today. Um, And it's very interesting to recall what happened in that instance. Our Governor-General, under our system of conventions, is supposed to act on the advice of the Government of the day. And what the Governor-General in 1975, Sir John Kerr, did was he defied the advice of the Government of of the day, Gough Whitlam, and he acted unilaterally to sack a government and get an election uh, under the leader of the opposition as acting prime minister. Mm. Now, all of us who are very committed to our system and the observation of those political conventions that make it work were repulsed by that unilateral action by the governor general. Um, I think, you know, the consensus is that it was wrong, And it caused a a shocking earthquake in the system, a huge amount of distrust, and I think was a very bad thing. And, you know, we've gradually gotten over it. But it's quite important to note that in this situation, David Hurley has not done a John Kerr. He has accepted the advice of the government of the day and apparently signed instruments enabling the Prime Minister, the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison, to also become the minister for several other portfolios secretly. So I think it's notable that Anthony Albanese has not attacked the Governor-General. I think that's very proper mm. because in our system, to stop Governor-Generals being more powerful than anyone else, which would of course create an, a presidential system, they do need to, to follow the advice, the legal, legally sound advice from the government of the day. And there's no suggestion that I've seen that the instrument by which Christian Porter as Attorney-General helped this happen was improper. So to the extent that David Hurley legally complied with the advice of the government of the day, I think that's a good thing. I don't like what happened as a result of it, but you do not want Governor-Generals unilaterally deciding what to do for themselves. That's not a good thing.
0: Yeah, some people had, had made the point that the Governor-General could have gazetted this occurrence, but that would have, of course, revealed this to the public if people had read the gazette. So obviously, he must have chosen not to, given the government had indicated to him that they wanted this to be kept secret. So I guess he really is in a, a difficult position, although his statement yesterday was quite surprising in the sense that he uh, used the word normal in the sense that this was a, a kind of normal thing, that it wasn't above and beyond or outside the realm of... The usual. And uh, Anthony Albanese was asked about his statement this morning and basically said that he essentially disagreed with that, that it was not normal, it wasn't, you know, usual. Um, but he also then did back in the Governor General and support him. So there is a bit of difficulty there for the Prime Minister because of the statement that the Governor General put out yesterday to try and defend himself.
1: Well, it could be, from the Governor General's point of view, normal in that an Attorney General presented a legal request that facilitated the Prime Minister doing something in a legally sound way. If that's what he meant by normal, yes, that could be, you know, construed as normal. I wouldn't. Mm. But, you know, he, it's understandable that he would. But what was definitely abnormal was what then followed, which was a very long standing veil of secrecy around these arrangements. Now, it's not the Governor-General's role to go out and announce things. so. That too is down to Scott Morrison, Christian Porter and Greg Hunt from that moment that it first happened. And you've got to, you've got to, just got to ask yourself, why would those people keep it a secret? Why? You know, what yeah. good purpose can be solved by the secrecy, especially as it expanded? Um, so, you know, it's just the, the biggest what that moment I've ever seen in Australian politics
0: That's a perfect way to summarise it. Chris, before we wrap up this topic, I just wanted to address the other issue here, which is that some members of the coalition on the Liberal and National side did eventually find out in the term of government when they were there, including, apparently, according to Samantha Maiden and News Corp, Peter Dutton, who is now the opposition leader, he at some point found out about Scott Morrison appointing himself to the health portfolio. And that's all we know about the extent of his knowledge during the last parliament. But we, you know, we also know Keith Pitt did eventually find out as well that he had his ministerial role shadowed by Scott Morrison and he was the resources minister. Keith Pitt is seemingly kind of downplaying the situation quite a lot. And you could understand why in the sense that he is is a current sitting member There are repercussions for the Liberals and the Nationals who are still in Parliament at the moment. And I wondered what your reflections would be on the political situation for them the more that we find out. If we discover that more people actually did find out, even if it wasn't at the time that it happened, but perhaps later, does that have repercussions for them and their place in Parliament and in politics? Does it call into question their integrity at all?
1: I think it certainly calls into question the coalition political culture uh, someone tweeted today a picture of Conchetta Fiera Vananti Wells uh, from her Senate. Morrison is an autocrat and bully speech. And of course, everyone in the current coalition who's in Parliament now, uh, at a minister- you know who was ex-ministerial, they all lived in a world where Morrison was a bullying dictator, essentially. So if there was a fear factor involved in speaking up, I could understand it. Uh, There was obviously self-interest in wanting to get to win the election and stay in government. Uh, Self-interest is never a particularly noble tray. Uh, In terms of people who are still in politics, really, you know, I think if Keith Pitt and I think why wouldn't he have said anything, why wouldn't he have said anything since the election? Mm. And, of course, you'd feel like a complete goose, wouldn't you? You'd feel humiliated. Yeah. Uh, the person who was unknowingly shadowed by his own prime minister and then discovered it and then got trounced on a decision that was, you know, within his purview as minister to make, you'd feel like a complete goose. And so the very human thing of not wanting to reveal your own humiliation at having been, you know, shadowed and done over by your own prime minister, its it's understandable that people haven't wanted to share that. But, boy, you know, when you add it to all the other terrible things that have emerged about coalition political culture and when you bear in mind our system of democracy only works well when there's a good alternative government uh, waiting waiting in place and stimulating better performance by the government of the day, it's it's really disturbing that Australia has, uh, on the conservative side of politics, such a, a kind of strange operation full of people like, Scott Morrison, it's 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 an untenable situation. We, we really, as Australians, need a coalition to get it together, review their political culture and sort themselves out so that they can present some sort of decent alternative government, which is necessary in our system.
0: Yeah. Well, talking of culture, we have seen the Nationals address their, quote unquote, women problem. I would call it a man problem but they essentially have denied quotas again. This seems to be just a, like round and round in circles for decades discussion, but that's also a part of, culture is the lack of diversity both cultural diversity and gender diversity and also ability people who are disabled in parliament and jordan Steele john has been raising that issue in this new parliament as well the green senator so there's a lot of crucial issues that are raising their head now because we have a very different parliament and chris i just wanted to close out this conversation by actually addressing the new parliament Unfortunately, I didn't get to watch Four Corners last night because I was preparing for the show. But there was a a piece about the new independents who have made it into Parliament and who do not have a background in politics until this election. And so apparently, according to many, it was quite revealing to get an insight into someone who's really just getting to know politics and Canberra and the Parliament. And I'm sure for someone like you who's been in the Canberra Press Gallery, it's not new at all. But I wonder, what are your thoughts on the new makeup of Parliament and what it's revealed about politics so far, if at if all? Has it changed things to any extent, whether it's the substance or even just the style of Parliament?
1: Yes, it was a really good Louise Milligan story last night. I mean, you could have done that that story a million ways, but she, she did it very well in that she allowed us basically to hang out with some of the in, in, incoming independents and experience with them what it's like to get to grips with the new system and, you know, have the odds stumble and not quite know what you're doing, but really some pretty impressive characters in that group. And, of course, Amy, those community independents that were elected the last election in Liberal seats, they're kind of like an immune system reaction to what's going on in, in coalition culture. Um, so so many of them, you know, back in the day, pre-Howard, could have become Liberal moderate Liberal MPs. But, as women as moderates, they're not welcome in the current coalition as it's as it's constituted. And when you look at what Morrison and what it was up to over the last term and a half, you can you can see why. Um, but have you watched Question Time at all in the New yeah, Parliament?
0: I did a little bit. I didn't watch it all in full because it was pretty intense with um the opposition. but I was impressed with some of the independent questions, which definitely were, true questions that everyone, I feel, has had on their tongues, including Monique Ryan's question about long COVID and the ongoing chronic health effects of COVID.
1: Yeah, it was a very good question. Mm. Did you notice anything about the way the the answers they got from Labor ministers? Because I thought there was a real sense of engagement by Labor yeah. ministers with the independence questions, uh, because they were proper questions, serious mm. questions. They weren't gotcha opposition questions, and I thought it was really encouraging that Labor ministers responded so considerately, mm. yeah, thoughtfully, substantively, and I thought, wow, this is this is a little insight into what parliament could be if there was less gotcha and, mm. and more substance. So I think, you know, those, those community independents that have been elected to replace uh, often deadwood LNP politicians, they've really opened a window into what's maybe ahead in Australian politics, you know? Yeah. Hope, better outcomes. I mean, I think the government overall has had a terrific start and I think if the community independents keep up the way they are and Labor keeps engaging with them constructively the way they are and other crossbenchers, I feel a lot of hope for this parliament.
0: That's so nice to hear. Well, I wanted to, that would be a great place to stop, but I did want to ask one more question. So unfortunately, it won't be as beautifully bookended as I'd like. But there was one question that was weighing on me and and you've been tweeting about it quite a lot. And I know you'll know what I'm talking about, which is the federal government's pandemic management or Lack thereof. And we know that the federal government does have a key role to play because throughout the last few years or couple of years, the Morrison government has certainly been under fire for their role in how they've managed the pandemic, as well as, of course, the National Cabinet um the secrecy around national cabinet and i wonder what your reflections are around the labor party and the way that it has approached pandemic management because we're seeing these very superficial symbols like wearing surgical masks in parliament on the labor side and the coalition largely not wearing any at all but really That's kind of the extent of it. The only real development I've seen in the last week, I would say, is that there was an ad on TV that basically said you should wear an N95 mask and open some windows. And that to me was like, oh, gosh, finally. But it took how long? (laughs) Like two and a half years to get to that point. So I wondered if you had reflections on the issue of pandemic management, given the high level of deaths, Australia having some of the highest per capita deaths in the world at the moment, in the winter wave, and this kind of very last-minute response by some of the state governments and the federal government to do anything at all in response to the huge numbers of cases and deaths that we've been seeing in the last few months. Very disappointing. I tell you what, there's a huge opportunity
1: for opposition health ministers around, shadow health ministers around the country who are nearly all coalition because, you know, just think, Amy... Every state and territory and federally, everything is Labor now in Australia except for New South Wales and Tasmania. And after March, New, New South Wales will probably fall too. Mm. So this is now down to Labor. And if, if you were a, a coalition opposition health shadow, what you'd be doing now, if you had any brains, was dividing up the weekly death rate under the coalition versus under Labor and hammering Labor about it. Mm-hmm. Labour is incredibly vulnerable on this issue. There is a mass death event and a mass disability event ongoing in Australia during this pandemic, which is not over. It has terribly ageist and ableist dimensions in that most people, including politicians, are mentally dismissing it as ah, oh, it's just old vulnerable people. It's only people with, you know, health vulnerabilities, chronic illnesses, ah, oh, you know, who cares? So there's this mildly eugenic undertone to it. And and to me, most shocking, Amy, is that leaders in the health profession, you know, Brett Sutton, the Victorian CHO, Brendan Crabb, the, the head of the Burnet Institute, Adrian Esterman at UniSA, they're all, you know, the head of the AMA. They are united yep. in the need for a big, fat, persuasive public health campaign, not these pathetic, boring, dribbling, ineffective vague gestures at public health campaigns we're getting on these things from existing state and federal governments, something really powerful that can change behaviour for the better in the way we've done so often before in the past. You know, just think of the degree of difficulty of the Hawke Government Health Minister, Neil Blurt, who successfully got gay men to wear condoms while having sex and got free needles out there everywhere for addicts in order to stop AIDS taking out way more Australians than it needed to. So the comparative task here with the ongoing pandemic is so much easier, yet everybody has given up and really it's it's not good enough. It's way not good enough.
0: I couldn't agree more. And the ableism, as you say, is just disgusting to... Say that it is just people with health conditions, underlying health conditions is shocking because everyone's life matters. But it was really sad to even read just yesterday that someone's goddaughter, apparently a 21-year-old, had died of COVID because apparently she had an underlying condition and that was just asthma, like regular run-of-the-mill yep. asthma. So for people to downplay this and say, oh, well, it was mild for me, it's, um, you know, fine for everyone else is ridiculous because there's not just death, but obviously as we've read, long COVID, it's utterly disabling and it'll change your life forever and you'll wish you had a worn a mask because it's such a tiny thing to do. Exactly. To stop your whole life changing.
1: Exactly. And, you know, that you you raised uh, Monique Ryan's question to to Mark Butler, in the parliament about long COVID, I was actually a little bit disappointed in her question because I was I was hoping it would focus on current measures, but mm. it basically was a question: What are your plans for dealing with long COVID? And in the Mark, future, yeah. But yeah. And Mark Butler gave an okay answer as far as it went, but it's like, it's like we can't influence how much long COVID there's going to be when we can. Mm. And so you know we've just gone through major convulsions as a society over climate policy and ended up with a government that's going to do better on climate policy because they're listening to the science. Well, why aren't they listening to the medical profession that's saying we can do so much better, so much better on COVID? We can get have less people get it and die from it now. We can contain long COVID by doing that. But no, nothing, zip.
0: Yeah. Pathetic. Yeah. It is pathetic. Thank you so much, Chris, for telling it like it is. And um, I really do appreciate all of your contributions today. It's been enlightening as always, and really uh, intellectually stimulating for me, and I'm sure for many others. And I've seen tweets saying so already. So thank you for joining us again. We're very, very grateful to you for your time. And I hope we can chat again soon. Always a pleasure, Amy. I've just been speaking with Dr. Chris Wallace about the latest in federal politics. And Chris is based at the University of Canberra, where she is a professor there at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation and is a previous member of the Canberra Press Gallery and an author. Do make sure you check out her excellent work. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3 R FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.